Thank you, choir. Wonderful song. John chapter 7, John chapter 7 in our Bibles today, and the subject is the empty space, the empty space. John chapter 7, when you find it, stand to your feet with me, if you will, please, as we read God's Word together. John chapter 7, and I begin reading in verse 37, John 7, 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Thank you, and you may be seated. You will notice there in verse number in verse number thirty-eight the word belly. Jesus said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Many times we translate that word there his innermost being. But the word is a Greek word. It's called koilea. And koilea simply means a hole or an empty space, an empty place. Sometimes in the Bible, the word for womb is translated from that word. So referring to the womb as an empty place, a place where a baby can reside, of course. And then here, he refers to it as the belly, the cavity in the body where food is held and nourishment. And Jesus here says that this, this empty space, he refers to it in a spiritual sense. He's not talking about a literal belly or a literal womb here. He's talking about the empty space or the empty place that's in the heart of a person, a human being, not a physical thing in reference here. The empty place is the source, he says, of our spiritual thirst, if you look here. He says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, and he will fill that empty place, that empty space. The solution is, he says, living water in verse number 39. And then he defines that living water as being the Holy Spirit, or he calls it the Holy Ghost here. Now, today in the traditional uh, liturgical church calendar, this is called Pentecost Sunday, the day when churches celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And today, that's sort of where I'm going with this message, is that the Holy Spirit of God is given to fill that empty place in our lives. You know, Jesus here describes these feelings that people have, and we all have these feelings at some point in our life, I believe. He refers to these feelings as a thirst. Other people have referred to it as a quest for God, a quest for the living God. And Jesus describes the feelings that we have that He calls thirst. They're feelings of emptiness, They're feelings of lostness, meaninglessness, despair, hopelessness. 
all of these negative feelings that we have as if we're, our lives are not fulfilling enough. And Jesus said the solution for that, you can fill that empty space with the Holy Spirit, His presence in your life. So let me talk to you about that empty space a few minutes. I want to describe it, <clears throat> and I think it's important you understand exactly what he's talking about. Now, I go back to last Sunday's message, and if you were not here, boy, I wish you would get that CD or listen to it on YouTube because to me it is a very pivotal message, one that I've preached four or five times through the years. And I continue to preach it because I believe it is so important. If we don't understand ourselves, that concept of body and soul and spirit, then we're never going to be able to understand what God is doing in our lives, uh, very frankly. And I told you then last week, man was created to worship God. What is the purpose of your existence Well, you may define that purpose based on what you think your purpose is, but from God's viewpoint, from God's standpoint, God created us as creatures to worship Him. And in His value system, worshiping Him is at the top of the value system. You see, as I explained last week to you, God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created us as a trinity. I am a trinity. You are a trinity. And you're a trinity in the sense that you have a body, the outward part of you that knows the world beneath you, the physical world. You are a soul, which is composed of your mind, your intellect, your emotions, and your will, your power to make choices. And then you have a third part, and that is your spirit. So your body, soul, and spirit. God is a trinity, and He made us in His image, and if I'm in His image, I also would be a trinity. I would be like Him. I would reflect that image in myself. But you see, when man sinned way back in the Garden of Eden, the third chapter of the Bible, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and follow Satan's instruction to them, the part that related to God died. The Spirit died. And so the New Testament says, until a person is saved, they're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 and 1. And so an unsaved person is a body with a soul, but a spirit that is spiritually dead until they're born again, as Jesus talked about in John 3. But now spiritual death doesn't mean their spirit no longer exists. Because in the Bible, the word for death, every time it's used in the New and Old Testament, the idea is not that we cease to exist, but that our spirit is separated from God by our sins. And so an unsaved person has a body and a soul and a spirit that is separated from God by his or her sin. A saved person has a body, a soul, and a spirit that can relate to God because it's been energized when the Holy Spirit of God came in and gave it new life. It's born again. So that brought about a conflict in people. Now, I hope you can follow me. I'm trying to keep it real simple and real clear, but it's, it, it's a complex but very profound teaching of the Bible. We need to, we need to grasp it. When man fell in sin, when he disobeyed the Lord there in Genesis 3. 
it immediately brought about a conflict in, in his life. Mixed emotions, if you will, overtook Adam and Eve at that time in their heart. You see, because their spirit had been separated from God by their sin, they now were under the control of their soul, their mind, their emotions and will. So they're going to make their decisions based upon that. They're going to make decisions based on their own mind, what they think is best, on their own emotions, how they feel, and on their own volition, their power to choose. They're going to make their decisions apart from God. Before then, while they were in relationship with God, they made their decisions based on what they thought God would have them do. And when we get saved, that's the same thing that happens to us. We now, with our spirits reborn, we want to please the Lord. So there's a conflict with my body, my flesh, my soul. I want to please myself. But with my spirit, once I'm saved and in fellowship with God, I want to please God. And so there is this conflict that's set up, and it creates that empty space, as I just said. Anthropologists, people who study human beings, have gone all over this planet They've gone into the deepest jungles of Africa and South America and Asia and so on, the most remote spots on all the earth. They have gone to study the cultures and the societies and, and the practices of every kind of human being you can imagine. You know what they've never found except maybe in one rarest of all exception, and we're not even sure of that. But I've studied this. I know they've never found a tribe or a people group or a nation that didn't worship God. They worship something. Well, I said they worship God. They worship something. They've never found a group of people who don't worship. Why is that such a universal trait? Every human being worships. Why is that? Because that's the way God made us. He made us with a quest for Him, an empty space, the belly the womb, whatever you want to call the empty space that's inside of man. In the deepest part of our being, there is a hole, and it's a God-shaped hole. It's a vacuum. And whether we try to deny it or not, we are on a quest for God throughout our existence. Blaise Pascal a 17th century French mathematician. Some of our great mathematical discoveries were made by him. He was a genius. And he also was a believer in Christ. And he wrote a book about the Christian faith. And I quote from it right now. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss or empty space can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, only by God himself, end of quote. 
what this brilliant, brilliant mathematician discovered in his life, and I hope you have and you will, or, and will if you haven't, is that there is this God-shaped space in our hearts. And we can try to fill that space with everything the world offers. And yet we're going to come up empty because nothing fits that space except God Himself. Augustine, as you know, the fourth century theologian, and also a brilliant, brilliant man, a thinker, a philosopher. And here's how he said it. Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Jesus referred to that restlessness as the belly, the empty space. And He says, if you will come to Me, out of that space will flow rivers of living water, but you have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to have the new birth. You have to be saved if you're going to, in fact, experience that, the empty space. But my second point to you today is this, that when men reject God, they fill that empty space with something else. When people reject God, they fill that empty space. And they fill it up with all kinds of things, good, bad, and indifferent, but they try to fill it with something that will not give them the hope and the joy and the fulfillment and the meaning that they so seek after. Now, the Bible calls these things that we fill it with idols. And what is an idol? Let me define an idol for you. It's anything that we put before, value more, or substitute for God. We tend to read our Old Testament and think of idols as these images that were made out of wood and stone and gold and silver, these elaborate carved images. There's the calf that was the image for the Baal worshipers of the Old Testament. They worshiped this bull. An idol, though, is far broader than that. An idol is anything we put before, value more, or substitute for God in our lives. You see, He made us for Himself, not for Baal, not for anything else. God's plan, God's desire is that we worship Him and that we worship Him alone. And so an idol, somebody defined it like this, is the substitution of anything that's created for the one who created it. God created everything, everything that you and I have and enjoy, material, spiritual or otherwise, everything that we have came from God's creation, ultimately, maybe indirectly. I may have a car. It may be made out of metal, but the metal was created by God, the ore and the ground. And so, directly or indirectly, everything that you and I know about or have is created, and only God is the Creator. And everything else is created. And an idol, then, is when I substitute the created for the Creator. A God then becomes what matters most to me in my life. It's my highest value, my highest priority. Worshiping is attributing to something that which is, it is the most important thing in my life. A God is what I depend on for significance. I, I depend on God this morning for my existence. 
In fact, I pray and ask him to give me health and to sustain me. What do I mean when I say, Lord, thank you for life and for sustaining me. I'm thanking him for for protecting my life and, and allowing me to live. I, I know that without his hand, I will not live another second. Our days are numbered. He is the one who determines the length of my days. So I attribute to God life. I attribute to God health. Yes, I go to the doctor. Yes, I've been to the hospital. But ultimately, I know my health is in his hands. Everything. I know that my family is in his hands. I know that my nation is in his hands. I know that our church is in his hands. I must never put anything that is created above the creator, or I've made it an idol in my heart, and then I will enjoy an empty life. There's a wonderful book. I bought it, oh my goodness, 30 years ago, I guess. The author is a man named Herbert Schlossberg. It was written in 1984, and I think that's when I bought it. It's called Idols for Their Destruction. Idols for Their Destruction. And in it he says, and I quote, the Bible doesn't talk about the rise and fall of nations. It speaks of nations as either submitting to God or rejecting Him and turning to idols. You don't see in the Bible talking about the rise and fall of Rome or the rise and fall of Greece or the rise and fall of Babylon. Everything, the whole framework for understanding nations according to God is, do they worship me or do they worship these gods that they've created with their own hands? And so what the Bible is doing, it's using idolatry, the worship of idols, as the framework for understanding our society around us. So God looks down at America and he says, either America serves me or America, the vast majority of people, serve some idol God, some other God, something that is created. And God's whole basis for evaluating a nation, read the Old Testament, you'll see it over and over. The whole framework for understanding a society or a nation is do they worship idols or do they worship God? Just two options in the mind of God. And so, in the Old Testament, the message is that when the people turned to idolatry, God brought judgment upon them. When the people forsook the worship of God, and He would give them opportunity after an opportunity after opportunity to return to Him. He begged them. He pled with them. He talked about it in terms of adultery. He said, it's like you're playing the harlot. I am your husband, and you're an unfaithful bride to me, Israel. And he would tell them things like that, and he would beg them and plead with them to come back to him. And in every case, they rejected him, and they continued on their path of idolatry. And finally, only one option for the Lord. He brought judgment. And so first, it was the lower ten tribes in Israel. It was uh, the nation of what we call Israel today in the Old Testament. Ten of the tribes went into captivity under the Assyrians. And those ten tribes, you've heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel. It's referring to those ten tribes. They went into captivity, and they have never returned. They never came back to the land. Then you had 
Judah and part of another tribe, Benjamin, and they went, uh, they, they continued for another 100, 150 years. They were not as bad as the northern 10 tribes were. And so then they were carried away into captivity because they too began to worship idol gods. And they were carried into Babylon. And you know about the Babylonian captivity, and it's all about the book of Daniel and part of Ezekiel and a number of the other, the Old Testament prophets. They write about it. They lay out a picture of it very, very clearly. There was two reasons that Israel was carried into idolatry, and only two. God never mentions any other sins. The two sins that he mentions are, number one, you worshiped other idols, and number two, you violated the Sabbath. In fact, the 70 years of captivity were calculated on the basis that they have forsaken and had not carried out their Sabbath day responsibilities, and so God fixed the sentence of 70 years based upon how many Sabbaths they had violated. And so God says there's two things. You have worshiped other gods, you've forsaken me, and you no longer honor my day. And so both nations were brought into judgment for that. Turn to Hosea in your Bible, if you will, please, for a moment. And I want to read to you a passage there. Hosea chapter number 8. And Hosea is a few books before the end of the Old Testament. If you're a new Christian and you're not used to these Old Testament books. But in Hosea chapter number 8 and verse number 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. In other words, they've chosen political leaders that I didn't choose. They have made princes, and I knew it not. And of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. You see the phrase there, that they may be cut off? It's interpreted in many times in the margin as for their destruction. So here's what God is saying here. With their silver and gold, they make idols for their own destruction. They make idols for their own destruction. And God warned them over and over. He pleaded with them, but they rejected him. After all the wonderful things that God had done for them, opening up the Red Sea, delivering them out of slavery in Egypt, feeding them in the wilderness, giving them victory, a little tiny group of people over great nations as they moved into the Holy Land. God had done wonderful things, myriad number of miracles, and they rejected him anyhow. And so they made idols for their own destruction. You get to the New Testament, though, it broadens the concept and teaches us that an idol can be an image like a, a statue, an idol can be a person, a living person like the Romans worshipped the Caesars. They looked at them as being deity. It can be an object like there have been people who would, uh, there's, there's been some illustrations, for example, of a meteorite falling to the earth and people would worship it. And uh, people can worship all kinds of bizarre things and they do. There was a woman down in Mexico that she was cooking tortillas, and she, the, the, she turned the tortilla over on the grill, 
and it had what it looked like the perfect picture of the face of Jesus. And you know what? People began to worship it. She took it and showed it to people, and people would fall down before it. And you've heard about cloud formations that people would see, and they would worship it. Um, Somebody said, and it's so true, the heart of man is an idol factory. Our hearts are an idol factory. And no matter if you're saved or lost, your, your heart can create idols faster than you can deal with them, I promise you. I know that because I have one of those hearts. It's easy to put something else above our Lord and rationalize it and justify it and, that, and end up as an empty person, as the Lord Jesus Christ here, with an empty space within us. I go back and quote Schlossberg again in the Idols for Destruction. Western society, in turning away from God, has turned to other things. We today call that process secularization. But all secularization means is we have turned from God to something else. He says, and I continue to quote him, the technological flowering and the economic expansion of the 20th and 21st centuries has been accompanied but an astonishing growth in pessimism, even despair. We're more affluent, we're wealthier, we have more stuff than we've ever had, and yet he says that technological and economic growth has been accompanied by a sense of pessimism, despair. And he goes further and says, and I quote again, the last 35 years have been prosperous almost beyond belief with a corresponding sense of doom and despair. What he's saying is what Jesus Christ called thirst, what Jesus was speaking about is what modern Western man is experiencing as a whole. We have turned from our God, and we've turned to other things, and we're empty. We have no hope, no solution. And as I said, the heart of man is an idol factory. There's a program on television called The American Idol. Well, it just is trying to create the idea of some person who sings beautifully to be idolized in culture. The truth is, is America is overwhelmed and overrun with idols this morning. There are the idols of self, which violates Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. So I'm not supposed to put myself above God. They're the idols of mammon. Luke 16 and 13, Jesus said, You cannot serve God and mammon. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, He warns us, He says, The love of money, greed, is the root of All evil, all kinds of evil flow out of that one sin, greed. He told us the story of the rich young ruler. In Matthew chapter 19, the young man came to him and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus told him, well, sell everything you have and follow me. Now, that wasn't a prescription for salvation. That was a test. Do you love me more than you love your stuff? 
and the interesting thing is verse 22 there. I wish I had time I'd have you look it up, but today I won't. It says there that after Jesus told that young man that, here's the Scripture, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Ah. Why did he not follow Jesus? He had too many things. His house was too big. His bank account was too full. His boat was too enjoyable. Everything that he was involved in in life. He had many possessions. And when he weighed all of his possessions in one hand and he weighed the Lord Jesus Christ in the other, the possessions won out. They were heavier. They were more valued. They were more weighty. And that's why it's so hard to follow Jesus Christ in an affluent culture like this. If you were poor, you wouldn't have the options you have. If you were dead broke, you couldn't do a lot of the things that you have. But we take the affluence that God has given to us and turn it around and use it to forget Him with it. They're idols of pleasure. I think of sports. I think of leisure. Seek ye first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and then all these other things that you aspire to, they'll be given to you anyhow. I think of power and position and celebrity, idols. <laughs> we got a really interesting thing going on this week. We've got the uh, president who claims to be a devout Catholic, and out on the West Coast, we got a drag queen group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, about as vile and wicked a thing as the ultimate depravity of man could imagine. They are anti-Christ. What they do is blasphemous, unbelievably so. They're anti-Catholic. They hate the Catholic Church. And they're all drag queens. They're men who dress like women. And now we got the Los Angeles Dodgers. I mean, apple pie, Americana, baseball. Yeah, we got a baseball team that's invited the sisters of perpetual indulgence to entertain at their ballpark on June the 16th. And heaven knows what they're going to do there. But they're grooming our kids and promoting this vileness all over the land. And what's going to be interesting to me, the L.A. Dodgers are presenting them an award, the Community Heroes Award. You understand what they're making heroes of? Now the president's got a decision to make. Here, one of his big bases is that movement. And over here he says, I'm a Catholic. It'll be interesting to see what he does. <laughs> Y'all don't find humor in that like I do. I think this is going to be real interesting. Mm-hmm. Which way are you going to go? Which way are you going to decide there, Mr. President? Drag queens or your church? You see, we'll find out who and what he worships. Idols of the heart. One more. Ezekiel. Will you turn with me to Ezekiel? 
because this one probably deals with my heart more than any other. Idols of the heart refer to philosophies, to social and political systems, to ideas, to beliefs that we hold. And in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is saying to the people, look, it's not just the images you're bowing down to that are idols. And in verse 3, son of man, the Lord says to him, these men have set up their idols in their heart. See, that's not an image. That's not Baal. That's not a statue. That's not something tangible. That's not money or possessions or even family. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart. It's something in their heart and their mind. And they've put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Should I ever listen to their prayers? Therefore, speaking to them and saying to them, Thus saith the Lord God, every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart. It says it four times in this chapter. And he putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet. I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. What a solemn thing. Idols of the heart. Concepts, philosophies, belief systems that we can worship. Marxism. Evolution. Genderism. Climate change even patriotism. I know people worship being a Democrat or a Republican. They put that above everything else. It takes out everything else in their life. Any philosophy, any belief system that I exalt above my Savior becomes an idol of the heart. So an idol is a substitution of anything that's created for the Creator. Now, let's back up. Jesus says there's an empty place in people's hearts. They thirst, but instead of following the Lord, they thirst for other things. They fill that empty space with other things, created things, idols, the Bible calls them. And my third point is simply this. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can fill that space. Only Jesus Christ and fill that space. We used to sing a song here. Somebody sang it, I forgot who. Only Jesus can satisfy your heart. You're going to find that out. You'll find it out now or you'll find it out later. But you'll find it out as you go through life, I think. You'll find that nothing else fits that space. That's a God-shaped space. And only our Lord can fill that. There's a God-shaped vacuum in your heart and in mine, and it cannot be filled by any created thing, only by the Creator God who is made known through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you bow your head with me?